IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the global insurance industry podcast, IB Talk. I'm your host, Paul Lucas, and how is your year so far? Uh, 2021 has certainly started off with a bang, what with pandemic-induced lockdowns, storms on the US Capitol, the inauguration of a new president, a data breach impacting the Reserve Bank in New Zealand, and a host of acquisitions sprinkled in with the odd new CEO or two. Yes, the only thing to expect in insurance is the unexpected. Yet there is one man who has been a steady ship amid a tide of uncertainty, having held CEO roles in the industry for more than two decades. Uh, You guessed it, he's my guest today. The CEO of Sedgwick International, Ian Mures. Uh, Ian, welcome to YB Talk. Hello and welcome and thank you for this opportunity, Paul. So, Ian, uh, you've had an amazing history, really, across the claims management sector. Um, Your credentials include being the group CEO at McLaren's. um, That was prior to its merger with Capita in 2001. uh, And you were CEO of international operations at Crawford & Company for a a decade and a half, I believe. Um, Before we get into those roles, though, tell us how you got into the industry itself. Why insurance? Well, yes, thank you, Paul. It has been a long time, and I actually came into this business, um, this will sound strange, uh, first came across this business over half a century ago. And the reason for that is that my father was an adjuster. He was a, a director back in the day at McLaren's. And my first memory of an insurance claim of any description would have been sitting in my father's car uh, in front of a burning cinema and the blue lights were flashing and uh, everyone's attention was drawn to my father and I was a young child with my jaw ajar uh, amazed at this involvement and that was when the seed was sown. So I came into the profession on the back of a family connection. Wow, so was it a case of did you feel sort of family pressure to follow in the footsteps or was it a case of you, you really just may perhaps wanted to emulate your father? Well, funny you should say that. It was exactly the opposite. I think my parents did not want me to join the profession. I went away to university. I studied uh, maths. So I, I get numbers uh, and I was offered a couple of graduate schemes back in the day, famously with companies that no longer exist, General Accident and Norwich Union. But I was persuaded uh, finally uh, to join an adjusting firm in the north of England, way back, unbelievably, in 1978. And how did your uh, how did your father react to that? As you said, they weren't too keen on you going into insurance. Yeah, it's really strange. I remember those days with fond memories. My father's no longer with us. And, and there was a time when, of course, you, your reputation as you're trying to develop a career is, uh, he's, he's Al's son. And then there's a tipping point as you develop one's career. And all of a sudden, it goes the other way. And... Uh, well, he, he's Ian's father, and that was what I aspired to aim for, to get that credibility. And uh, I, I moved away from home. I lived in a pretty humble bedsit up in Sheffield in the north of England, and it was not an easy time, but I felt it was necessary to, to prove myself, and uh, that, was, um, that was how I did it. Yeah, amazing. So... Um... 1978 you've moved into this role you're in your, your bed sit in Sheffield fast forward you know not too long really and and you were you know sitting in in CEO roles and I think that's a, a position that you know a lot of people aim to hold when their careers start out but very very few achieve so how did you make that progression um, into into those positions 
Well, I think I mean, it is a lesson and, and, and on a global stage. It's an international play, but I, I moved around. I moved around in the UK. I spent time in various parts of the north of England, and then I had responsibility for Scotland and Ireland. I moved down to London in the kind of mid to late 90s, and I was always um, keen to use the knowledge I was gaining to develop the business. I've always had thoughts on how, how to progress the organization, indeed the profession, which has moved a long way since those heady times. But I think it's an ambition. I'm always trying to do more. Uh, and always trying to develop yourself uh, professionally and personally. So it's interesting to know then what um, sort of developments you were you're hoping for sort of back at the start of your journey and, and have they come to light? I've always harbored a view that insurance is much maligned. I mean, back in the, in the day, as, as one says nowadays, um, banking was, was a, as a profession. Do you remember the bank manager was someone that, stored away and then it became it became contemporary and um, investment banks became the go-to place for university graduates and I've always felt and I always have felt for the time throughout my career that insurance has got a bad rep we don't get the credit we deserve for the role we we play in society or, or propping up the economy in so many different ways and and um and I think from a personal standpoint, I guess how I'm wired, people used to say, what do you do? I, I, I never used to say I'm a, I'm a loss adjuster. And I never used to say I'm in claims. I used to always open the discussion. You know, what do we do? We help people. We help people at the time of need. And that goes back, way back when my career began, because that's what I was doing. I was handling claims. I was dealing with small claims, then larger claims, and more responsibility. All throughout that time, the simple mantra in my mind was, you know what, we're helping people. And, and when we help people and they have a claim and it's a crisis in their lives, at the end of the year, on New Year's Eve, when they're talking about that experience with their friend, friends and family, the recollections they have will always circle back to the advice and the support and the help they got from the person that came along when they needed that help most. Yeah, I think it's something that perhaps um, the industry could emphasize more when it's looking to a attract um, newcomers, you know, young people to the industry. Would you agree? A hundred percent. I've spent time interviewing potential recruits from the you know, university milk round, as they say, graduates. And I remember famously a, 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 a potential recruit uh, in my subject mathematics choosing to join um, an investment bank, believing that it was a great career as opposed to insurance claims. What's that? And the reason it sticks in my mind, Paul, is he came back six months later and said, I made a big mistake. Can I? Is, is there still an opportunity? And there was. And, and the thing was, he was attracted by a, an investment bank. The reality was, you were sitting at a desk with three screens, feeling important, but the, the opportunities we bring in terms of allowing people to fulfill their potential, helping people literally all over the world is, is, a, is almost unique. And, and he realized that, that um, opportunity six months later than he first may have done. So just tailoring back to your career 
trajectory. Are there any sort of tips that you could give or were there any perhaps points along that path that you thought were key in your advancement? Uh, I think it'd be really interesting for, for people to hear, um, you know, just, just how you make it into a CEO role. I don't think there's a playbook, Paul. I don't think I'm on chapter seven of, the, of, of how it plays out. I think it's down to the individual. You have to have a passion. You have to really care about what you do in any organization, in any profession, in any area of life, I believe. And if you're sanguine and, and disinterested and it's a job, not a career, then my expectation, and we, you know, we all see those kind of people, is that that, that, will, that that person will find a level. But those that are hungry for success and want to make a difference and can see areas that in the world they operate need improvement and are prepared to find ways, even if they are challenging, to, to, to achieve change, then they are the people that will lead organizations in the future. They are the people that will manage teams in the future, and they are the people that will make a difference in the future. Yeah, it's great advice. So so having worked for three of really the, the giants of, of claims management around the world, McLaren's Corford, and, and now in your capacity, of course, Sedwick, Sedgwick, excuse me, which you've been in for just over three years, um, tell us what are the differences between the firms? Well, clearly all three are prominent firms in our sector here in 2021. There are some real differences which are there for all to see. And it's very interesting sometimes uh, through my leadership roles with those firms to reflect on that. that McLaren's was a partnership back in the day. So that has certain characteristics. There were 44 partners of the firm. Uh, so there's one feature, if you like, even though it was a global organization. Uh, Crawford clearly still remains a publicly listed New York Stock Exchange listed corporation. Uh, Sedgwick has always been very successful in the private equity market. So I've seen the differences. One day, one day maybe <laughs> I'll write a book or I'll do a podcast on the difference, the different characteristics of partnership public and private equity-backed firms, they are different. Uh, but that certainly, I think, has been something I've, I've seen over the um, over the decades, as you say, Paul. Yeah, so for our audience who, you know, probably made up of, of insurance professionals and brokers, um, what would you say separates a, a great claims management firm from the pack? Well, you know, any of, any of the firms and anyone um, in this profession, it's only about the people. We, we, our assets walk in the office every day, or they did. Uh, we don't make anything, we don't manufacture anything, we don't store anything. Our ability to make a difference in, in the world we operate centers around our people. And I think behind that uh, always comes back time after time to the culture of a firm. And the culture of the firm starts and ends with the leadership and what I call the tone from the top. So for me, that, that really what is what drives the difference, Paul. And I think culture, what do they say? <coughs> culture eats strategy for breakfast sounds a little cheesy, but there's something in that. The culture driving the behaviors of the people that are the assets of an organization like ours is everything. Yeah, and, and, and sort of sitting in that role then, where, where you are at the top and you can drive that culture, um, can you give us a little insight into the, the, the sort of um, 
features perhaps that you implement that uh, that help to drive the culture at Sedgwick? Well, Sedgwick, the extent to which Sedgwick focuses on its people is is perhaps highlighted by something I was surprised to find when I joined. We don't have human resources, HR, we have colleague resources. That might sound like nothing at all. We have CR. Hey, what what what's the deal? The deal is that that from the top down, for all the leaders, for all the managers, for everyone all around the world, the colleagues matter most. It, 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 it is only about that above all else. And frankly, at Sedgwick, we take the view we have a, a, a an approach linked to caring counts. It's the culture of the organisation. And then we believe that having the right people in the organisation, hardwired into that kind of thinking, passionately believing in the firm that they work for, passionately caring for each other, then you know what? Our clients will always get outstanding service and our business will thrive. Yeah, I, I think, and that's obviously a, a sort of a, a rules that can apply, I think, at any time. But we've certainly seen a lot of change, I guess, particularly in the, in the last year, um, as we sit in the era of COVID-19. Um, it's probably a huge question, Ian, but can you give us an overview of, of the impact that the pandemic has had on claims handling? Well, yes, quite a year. I think we'd all agree um, here early in 2021. Uh, so, I mean, amazingly, we're all now several months down the line back in March it all changed so for Sedgwick you know we're a big international organization do a lot of things in a lot of different countries a lot of different products and services for many clients um, and to that extent a large part of what we do was already deploying technology to a considerable extent I can think about uh, parts of the organization that had moved away from a traditional uh, approach of visiting a site where a claim has arisen, uh, you know, way back when that was a clipboard and a piece of paper and a file and a report and something called an invoice and maybe one day a check for services rendered, that became replaced with technology and mobile technology in the field. The, the way that Sedgwick had already advanced back in March was deploying remote technology, self-service, drones, that kind of thing, to quite some extent, I'm pleased to say. Uh, along came COVID and the deployment of that simply exploded. I mean, we, we look back in a heartbeat, we shifted to remote working very seamlessly, successfully. We have a rich IT heritage. The technology group at Sedgwick is world class. Uh, the budget is amazing. The 1500 people in our technology group have provided the best technology you can get in claims and we we're able to deliver that to our customers remotely overnight. So it was very seamless. But I think what's interesting, Paul, now is just how that's really a feature of the narrative and is here to stay. It's unlikely, it's not unlikely, it's totally unrealistic to imagine that uh, we will regress back to visiting every single claim that is assigned to Sedgwick in a traditional way, we will and are successfully continuing to deploy leading edge digital technology in a way that uh, is at times extraordinary. Yeah, it's hard to sort of look at the positives of the, the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of, you know, obviously there's been such an extensive loss of life and so on. But um, has this perhaps been, you know, one perhaps small silver lining on, in, amid the cloud, so to speak, that, um, you know, the industry has sort of made 
steps forward. It's advanced on the back of this. No, I think you're quite right. No question you're quite right. And we had an example uh, towards the end of last year now in Australia where there was a significant catastrophic weather event involving hailstorm uh, in, up in, in Queensland. Access not possible because of COVID lockdowns. Uh, in a heartbeat, switching to remote technology, digital tools, drones, and the vast majority of the claims were very successfully, very quickly dealt with and navigated through using this new digital approach. Great commendation for the teams down there from the market. And I just doubt whether we'd have got that far this quickly without COVID forcing the pace. So it's a, it's a perverse irony that something as unsettling and worrying and, and um, as COVID has become has had a positive, positive benefit because in our world, for me, it has accelerated something that was starting to arrive anyway. Yeah, but the industry has been in the spotlight, though, hasn't it? Especially, you know, surrounding the the influx of, of business interruption claims, the judicial appeals and so on. Um, from your perspective, do you think that claimants are, are really getting the help that they need right now? Yeah, it's a tough time for um, policyholders that are seeing some uncertainty around potential impacts on businesses, um, SME businesses, certainly, where those question marks about policy cover. As we record this ahead of a, uh, an FCA appeal uh, that's due in the UK, that uncertainty remains. And I do harbour some concerns about that. You, you'll have heard already, I care a great deal about the profession, the insurance industry generally. And I, I do worry that sometimes we're not seen to be at the forefront of providing the support to the public that they might reasonably expect. Now, there's a huge discussion there around the insurance uh, sector's ability to respond to any incident and every incident beyond which they believe they are there to indemnify for as in a written contract. But somehow, through all of this, the, the industry needs to navigate through and avoid brand reputational damage, which was something back in 2008, you know, I think about this, the global financial crisis, arguably in 2008, the banking industry were, were, were seen by the public to be culpable in, in getting the economies of the world to that point. I would hate to think that insurance is in any way, shape or form associated with some of the implications of, of COVID. And, you know, you've got to cast your mind back. Sometimes insurance gets caught up in its own technicalities. 9-11, um, one is incident or two, even Hurricane Katrina, uh, is it a storm, is it a flood? And whilst ever these are the right discussions to have, in the eyes of the public, there, there is a risk that insurance is seen to be, rightly or wrongly, and I'm not arguing either way, is seen as avoiding its obligations. And that just makes it harder for our insurance clients to keep developing their business and growing their ability to engage with their own customers. So from your perspective, do you think the industry's reputation has suffered during the pandemic? Uh, Paul, I don't think it's suffered, uh, but I do think it needs to pay more attention 
to how we are seen. I mean, we've spoken already about the, the how the industry is seen by potential recruits coming in. I think insurance can do so much more. We're an unbelievable profession which props up the economies all around the world, in my view. You know, when the rubber hits the road, the moment of truth is, is when a claim arises. And um, for me, that should represent a far better opportunity to showcase just how people can sleep in their beds at night at home, worry less around risk if their organisations are protected by by financial uh, support of, a, of, a, of an insurer. And I think if we can if we can remember that and, and get that message across to the people that buy insurance products more in a better way, that has to be a positive. We're a big part of the of the global economy. I just wish that we got a better understanding and insight from the buyers at times. And I'm sure that all of us are hoping that you know the, the COVID nineteen pandemic is, you know, gener- generally as it's been sort of touted that kind of once in one hundred year event, and that it doesn't crop up any sort of nothing like this crops up any sooner than that. But if we were to encounter, for example, you know, another pandemic in you know whether it's ten years or whenever. Um, do you think that it's a, sort of a specific lesson that you would say can be learned from, from the way we've handled it this time around, maybe something that we could do better um, that you think the insurance industry can take forward into that situation? I think planning comes into it to a large extent, Paul. I think pre-planning, there's, there's, there's a view out there that the, you know, the next catastrophe, global natural catastrophe of some order of magnitude is, is around the corner. It's not a question of uh, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And we all have seen the examples of that, whether it's earthquakes in New Zealand or floods in Thailand or hurricanes in the Caribbean. These things happen. We've now got um, risks around um, pandemic, which is high profile, and the insurance market's thinking about that. We've obviously had cyber in play, and all of these, all of these potential risks have behind them the need for insurance to step up and provide an answer knowing that something might happen because if it wasn't the case why would people buy insurance and so therefore logically it would seem to me that that we can and should always strive to do more collaboratively before these things happen to be better prepared to respond more expeditiously fairly sympathetically empathetically and collaboratively and i think sometimes Sometimes some of the breakthrough thinking gets held up by protectionism around brand and silos and even little things like we've seen flooding in the north of England and you know, one street underwater can have 50 houses where the, the homeowners are handling, seeing claims handled 49 different ways and wondering why the profession and the industry isn't better organized i sometimes think that we could do a better job for that yeah i think i think that makes a lot of sense and you know you mentioned a little bit earlier about a few tragic events that i guess you've been involved with from from a claims handling perspective you you briefly mentioned 9 11 for example and hurricane katrina um changing pace 
a little bit, but I, I wanted to find out about sort of the first tragic event that you were involved with um, from from that claims handling perspective, which I believe was uh, Pan Am Flight One Hundred Three, which um, is is known probably around the world as, as the Lockerbie disaster. Um, for our younger listeners or anyone perhaps overseas who may be unfamiliar, um, can you recap what happened for us and, and, and then explain how, how you dealt with it in that situation? Yes, and um, that was that, that left a mark on me, which lives on to this day. So the 21st of December 1988 was the date, so it is a long time ago, and it proves that um, you know, that's back in my operational days. Uh, at that time, I was a, a regional manager uh, of an adjusting firm that was McLaren back in the day. I was, um, it was just before Christmas. There was an office Christmas function in the northwest of England, close to the town of Lockerbie, which is in the Scottish borders. And uh, tragically, uh, just after 7 p.m. that night, news came through that there'd been a terrorist attack on that Pan Am jumbo, which had crash landed with devastating consequences on Sherwood Crescent and the town of Lockerbie. And um, even before social media and the world's um, satellite TV crews, it was pretty high profile. I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place. Who knows? I was one of the first people in, 4 o'clock in the morning, and saw sites that you would never wish to see again. It was literally a war zone, but it was, uh, so I was involved then, stayed there for a few months and dealt with the claims on the ground, uh, blanket instructions from insurers and the recovery against Pan Am and uh, uh, as, a, as a recovery from their insurers. But the abiding memory for me, and it was a, it did leave a mark, was that point I made before about helping people. People were in distress, like you wouldn't believe, understandably so. And in no time at all, in days before Christmas, we were able to rehouse people, literally get get food on the table, gifts for children, cash in their hand. And it blew me away, the reaction, literally. Um, tears and hugs and, and uh, we were making such a difference. Uh, so that was my first experience. I've had other experiences since, but that one left a real mark. So now whenever I see reports that cross my desk of our people responding to catastrophes all around the world. I'm reminded of just how important it is, how we react, what we do, the difference we make. And it does go back, way back, to December 1988 when I had that lasting uh, experience which still lives in the memory. Yeah, I mean, I I remember it very clearly myself, and I mean, I was only six years old at the time. It it, it really sort of um, made a, a huge mark on me, all the TV images at the time, and so on. Um, are, are there specific sort of lessons that you learned from from that experience, um, even at that sort of stage of your career, that perhaps you still apply today? You need to be quick. You need to be empathetic. You need to be recognizing just how important this, these things are. But I think it translates to more than these significant, you know, that was a headline, world headline grabbing event, as are other catastrophes all around the world. But I don't see any different. You know, if someone has a flood in their home in uh, Queensland, Australia, or a fire in their kitchen in Barcelona, or anything, any example you choose. For them, at the time, it's the most important thing. 
And, and the first thing they do is they search out their insurance policy pool and they wonder what will happen next and it's all a bit unknown and it's worrying and they're asking people, you know, what happened. And when they get a call from Sedgwick saying, we're here in connection with your claim, we'll be, we'll be in touch shortly, we're here to help. You know what? That's massive. That's enormous. And that, that impact and how we then conduct ourselves, allowing them to recover from that situation. I promise you it lingers long in their memories and the impact that we make doesn't have to be in regard to a high profile catastrophe that grabs the headlines. All of our people, 6,000 people in my world that are dealing with nearly a million claims a year know from me that every touch they have, every call they make, every meeting they have, has to respect the fact that the person they are talking to is is in the middle of what is quite often a life-changing event. And, and, and we need to care passionately about how they feel and how we can help them recover. I guess in, a, in an ironic sense, it's, it's sort of being involved in tragic events like this that must make you particularly proud to be part of the insurance industry. Um, I think it's a fantastic industry. It's enormously undervalued, underrated. I, I see I see my role as a privilege in having responsibility for all of the people internationally at Sedgwick, all around the world, to, to make such a difference. And you know, we, we I, how do I see I see complaints occasionally. But you know what, Paul, I see I see amazing commendations and thank you letters. We have a wonderful customer care group that are focused on vulnerable policyholders, you know, on the on the uh, dementia spectrum particularly, we're looking at that. Really terrific work. And it's, I promise you, it's humbling to see some of the feedback we get from vulnerable customers that where we put an extra effort into guiding them through, literally helping them every step of the way. I mean, it's hard enough in a normal crisis, but you, when you've got some challenges to overcome and we go the extra mile to support them through that, it does, I genuinely mean this, it makes me super proud. Yeah, I think that's a, a great great way for us to wrap up, Ian. Um, you've been a, a brilliant guest with some, some excellent stories to tell. Uh, thank you very, very much for your time. Um, for everybody listening, I'm Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we'll talk to you next week, everybody. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.